you be friendly? Okay, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We finally have arrived at Hebrews chapter 7. I'll be reading Hebrews 7 verses 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word to our hearts, our souls, and our thinking through Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we so covet the work of your Spirit to shock our minds unto life and action as we take every jot, every tittle of this passage seriously to, to understand what you are lovingly communicating to us through it. And oh, that our hearts will then love, embrace what we see and draw near to our great high priest. Do it, O oh Lord, to the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as we come here to chapter 7, particularly if you've got a paper Bible and not an electronic one, you can see the whole thing. All of chapter 7 here is about Melchizedek, but not really. 
It, it is really about Jesus. It's long, it's complex, and it leads to the climactic main point, look down there, of verse 25, where it begins with, Consequently, or therefore, He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Since, or because, He, Jesus, always lives to make intercession for them. That's the point. And that verse, that statement, is based on verses 1 to 24. Now, because of the length and the complexity of all of chapter 7, that's why this morning I'm only going to cover up to verse 10, and then we'll come back. So, let's first again put this chapter in its historical context. Remember, the writer is writing to Jews, Jewish Christians. Many of them have been Christians for a decade or more at this time. And what's happening now is that many within this group of Jewish Christians are being tempted to mosey on back to Judaism because of feeling ostracized by the non-believing in Jesus Jewish community, which is their entire culture that they were raised on. It They're feeling persecution as being this Jesus sect people. And so they're thinking, hmm, as they become dull of hearing, Hey, you know what? Ain't that bad in Judaism? I mean, our Judaism, and with Moses, it at least tells us how we should live life. And the rituals, and the sacrificial system, the traditions, that culture, it's our culture, it's familiar to us. I mean, this was the faith of our fathers for centuries on end. Maybe we should go back to the way things were. And we'll fit in. And so, what we have seen is that the writer's trying from the very beginning of the letter to convince these people that the religious system of sacrifices and rituals and cultural laws that, that had been in place for over 1,400 years, they have now been replaced by a better covenant. And he'll get into that. One Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied about called a new covenant. The one Jesus said, this cup, my blood, is the blood of the new 
covenant. And so the writer focuses throughout on the supremacy of Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all that was written in the books of Moses and the Hebrew prophets. And so now here he's introduced a theme theologically that is not dealt with anywhere else in all of Scripture except here in the book of Hebrews. I mean, David alludes to it in Psalm 110, which he'll quote, and that is this, that Jesus is our high priest. Now, we have to understand historically the Old Testament, and we have to understand personally in our own lives our need, need of a high priest. And we're only going to get that to the degree that we realize how holy and how unapproachable God is because of our sin, our defilement. Remember Isaiah was given a vision in Isaiah 6. He saw Yahweh high, lifted up on His throne and the train of His kingly robe filled the temple and cherubim all around. And His reaction was not, Cool! How you doing, O King? His reaction by the grace and the work of the Holy Spirit was he was devastated. I'm undone. And then, of course, you know the rest of the story. Go on the tongue. And, okay, I got, I got you covered. I got you covered here. I got you covered, not you. Isaiah. Israel in the wilderness saw Moses go up on the mountain with lightning and thunder, and their response was terror. And appropriately so. Because if the people got close to the mountain, God warned that He would break forth upon them in a deadly plague. Throughout Israel, the Jews knew because of what God gave them through Moses. They couldn't just stroll into what is called then the presence of God behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies and say, Hey, God, how you doing today? They couldn't go there at all. Only a representative, only the high priest could go there once a year and not without blood. The Jewish people knew how desperately they needed a high priest in order to approach God. And so, the author here of Hebrews, he's making the point that Jesus is our high priest. But he's not just the fulfillment of the Levitical priesthood. He is something far greater. That's how he ended chapter 6, that last verse. Jesus 
is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. To view Jesus as on par with the Levitical priesthood would be an eternally fatal mistake. The entire old system was designed to point ahead. It was a shadow. It was a type to point to Jesus who would supersede that system. And therefore to go back, he's saying 2,000 years ago, my fellow Jewish Christians, to turn back to the sacrificial system would be to abandon the only one could take away your sins. It would be to abandon the only entrance into God's merciful, peaceful presence. Why would you want to go back to an inferior system? So the author is saying, you need to know about Melchizedek. Need to know it because he's a type. He, he, he's, a, he's a shadow, a picture of the reality of who Jesus, when he comes, will be for you. You desperately need to know about Jesus. Therefore, you need to know about Melchizedek. So here in chapter 7 of Hebrews, the writer's picking up now, let me stop for Remember, I know because in, in here, Sunday morning sermons, it's actually, it was two months ago, a little bit more, when we were in chapter 5, where he first introduced Melchizedek. Chapter 5, verse 10, where he said in verses 9 and 10, And being made perfect, he, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so he's ready to tell him why. Except the very next thing he said then in verse 11 was this. About this, the theology of Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it hits the author. It says, it's hard to explain. No, not because I don't know how to explain it. He's actually going to, he's doing that this morning here in verse chapter 7. But it's because you have become dull of hearing. And so at that point, the author now, essentially his last two months was a large parenthesis, is what he did. He, he, he digresses starting there into a warning about hard-heartedness and falling away from Christ, starting in chapter 5, verse 11, all the way through the rest of chapter 5, all the way through chapter 6, until the very last verse. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he wants them to understand Melchizedek so that they can gain a deeper a more intimate knowledge of Jesus. 
But he's warned them. Christ doesn't reveal himself to those who are lazy, apathetic, dull of hearing. And so now he's hoping he's got their attention and our attention. And so notice in chapter 7 here, there's one command, only one imperative verb. It's in verse 4. See how great this man was. That's what we're to do. See, literally observe, consider. We're to observe and to consider Melchizedek because he's a type, a picture of Jesus Christ. Why would we do that? Because we desire to see the beauty and the glory of our Lord Jesus. So, Melchizedek. Everything there is to know about him or could be known about him is found in Genesis chapter 14, short little passage. And then, a few hundred years later, by David, in Psalm 110, little verse. And then, the unpacking of it theologically, right here in Hebrews chapter 7. So remember, here's the story, historically, in Genesis, Abraham had gone after these four kings who attacked these other five kings over here, but in so doing, when he attacked the king of Sodom and Sodom, that town, and Gomorrah, and a few other places, he took, they took his nephew Lot. And so Abraham, with all of his hundreds of servants, goes after him. Now, look, these kings are not kings of massive nations. They're, it's almost like the old Greek city-states, they rule themselves, but it's not democracy, it's they got a king. So Sodom has a king, Gomorrah has a king, all right. Bela has a king, Adma has a king. And so Abraham goes after them, defeats them, plunders them, takes their possessions, and he takes Lot home. And then on his way back home, Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 to 20, picks up saying, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, another one of those towns. Now that town happens to be that one on that hill, which is where Jerusalem then would be. So it is the same place later called Jerusalem. So here, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And then the Holy Spirit had this put in there because it was true. God called him. He was priest of God Most High. So, and he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. 
And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. That's all you get. And so out of that, what that little short passage says... And what it does not say, the writer to the Hebrews draws some amazing parallels to Christ. So the first thing that he notices is that Melchizedek was both a king and a priest in the same person, which Israel is not established yet. When it gets established under Moses later, under the law, that is not allowed. You can be a priest, you could be, you could be a king, but you will not be both. So he sees this. So look at verses 1 to 2 of Hebrews 7. He begins this way. For Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Now he, that is Melchizedek, is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then... He is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. What he's saying is simply this. So in, in Hebrew, melech, it means king or my king. Zedek means righteousness. Melech, Zedek. Melchizedek. And he is the king of that town called Salem. And of course, Salem's coming from shalom, meaning peace. So the writer, he sees this, and he knows that Jesus is called Jesus Christ, the righteous, like 1 John 2, 1. He never sinned. He in himself is utterly, in his humanity, righteous. No guilt could ever be found in him. Just jump down to verse 26 of chapter 7. The writer will just clearly say about Jesus. He was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. So he's the king of righteousness. And he's also, he tells us, the king of peace. Like what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Very simply, identification. He is our peace. What does that mean? It's the gospel. It is Jesus only that has stopped the war that God righteously has on us. Jesus is the one who brings peace between God and a sinner. Remember how Paul summarized this? 
After just unfolding the beauty and the depth of the gospel in the first four chapters of Romans, he then begins chapter 5 with, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, God's declared us righteous based upon nothing in us but imputed Jesus' righteousness to us because He imputed our sin to Him and justly punished it and put it away. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It doesn't at its core mean, well, I'm okay with you now, God. I'm at peace with you. It means He reconciled us to Himself. He did the act to bring Himself to peace with every sinner who would ever believe in Jesus. And so Melchizedek now, he's a type of Christ, according to the author here, in that he is a king, and he is a priest, representing both righteousness and peace. Then he goes on to let us see that Melchizedek is also a type of Christ in that he has no temporal origin. Or unending, he has an unending priesthood. Being a priest in Israel was totally dependent upon your family lineage. All priests came from the tribe of Levi. Jacob, 12 sons. Twelve tribes of Israel, only Levi, God says, will the priests come. But Melchizedek was, according to what he says here in chapter 7, verse 3 now, he was without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. Now, there, there are always a few who interpret Melchizedek's lack of genealogy and his, quote, having neither beginning of days nor end of life to mean that he was some kind of a superhuman, maybe an angel, or maybe a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, a Christophany. I don't think that's true. I don't think it's the point in Genesis, and I don't think it's the point that the Hebrew writer is making. Why? First, because he makes it clear. It's a comparison. 
quote, resembling the Son of God. Literally, in the Greek, having been made like the Son of God. That argues against this being a Christophany, a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus. Because a, a comparison with the actual Son himself with the Son doesn't make any sense. Secondly, Jesus became, the Son became a high priest after the order of Melchizedek later. After his incarnation, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, and his exaltation. And third, he's called, this guy in Genesis 14, the king of Salem. There's a town up there, and he is the king during Abraham's time. When we get a couple glimpses in the Old Testament of a theophany or a Christophany, okay, like the dude who met Joshua, I'm pretty positive that's a Christophany, the Lord Jesus in a pre-incarnate addressing him. When that happens, it just happens out of the blue. They're not placed in any kind of historical with a, with a name, and a place. This guy is king. Of Salem. Okay, so look, what's happening? The writer, what he's doing, he's building an argument from the strange silence in Genesis about all this other stuff about him. In other words, Genesis, which is a book that emphasizes genealogies. It emphasizes when they're born, to whom they're born, and when they die. Numbers of years they live of these great patriarchs. And in the midst of this, seemingly out of nowhere, he comes back from the slaughter of the kings, and you got that much. King of Salem, Melchizedek, meets him, and he gives us this, and there's nothing said about him about where he comes from, his genealogy, or that he, when he died, it's never mentioned. And nor does Genesis say anything about how long he lived or when he died. So the author, this is, this is what I'm understanding him to do. He's saying that the Holy Spirit in Genesis deliberately omitted any of these facts in order to make Melchizedek an appropriate picture or type of Jesus Christ. And hundreds of years later, again, out of the blue, King David, by the Holy Spirit, prophesies concerning the Messiah. You're a priest forever after the order of this obscure dude, after the order of Melchizedek.
So the point is this. It's not that the man, Melchizedek, never died. But it's rather in what Genesis omits about all that stuff in genealogy that he continues a priest forever. And so we know, too, Jesus' human lineage in Scripture, it's clear that he did not descend from Levi, but from Levi's brother, Judah. He's not from the priestly line. To be our high priest... Jesus had to be of a different priestly order. After the order of Melchizedek. Now, in his divine nature, as son of God, and look, that title is used deliberately by the author in verse 3 in order to focus on Jesus' deity. So, from his deity, not his human nature, Jesus has no lineage. And thus he fulfills the reality to which the type Melchizedek points. And as the writer, he's going to go on to make clear, all the Levitical priests, they died, they had to be replaced, but Jesus, who died, rose and lives forever, unendingly now, in his high priesthood. Then the author goes on to argue now. Watch. And there's a reason he's doing it contextually, historically, to the people he's writing. He's going to go argue that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham and greater than Levi or the Levitical priesthood. And here's his argument. Because Melchizedek received tithes from both of these great men. Start with verse 4, read through verse 10. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say 
that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Abraham recognized that this man was priest of God Most High. God called Abraham. We got that story. Just assume God called Melchizedek as he did. Spoke to him. And he was priest Most High. Abraham gets it. And he gave him a tenth. He gave him a tithe of all the spoils that they plundered. And he did it as an act of worship of God and of a grateful heart for the victory over these four kings. And Levi, who didn't come for hundreds of years later, well, no, that's not true. Levi came, what, 150 years later, maybe. Okay. He gave tithes also through Abraham, through Abraham's tithes. See, in the, the Hebrew culture and in the Hebrew mindset, all the descendants of a, of a man, even though they haven't come yet, it's as if they're there right then in the loins of the man. So as Abraham pays tithes, Levi's coming from him, he paid tithes. If you don't believe that, boy, you're going to really miss the gospel from this Hebrew thought when Paul says in Romans chapter 5, in Adam, we. You know, remember he sinned? Remember Abraham gave tithes? When Adam sinned, we all sinned. Levi paid tithes, the loins of his ancestor. Abraham. The whole point of the typology then between Melchizedek and Jesus is that since Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham and from Levi, the whole Levitical priesthood, Melchizedek, who is the type or the picture of Jesus, is greater than both Abraham and the entire Levitical priesthood. Now watch, because we, not just our fellow brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago receiving the letter initially, we are to get this and let it hit us. Even though one of the most significant human beings in human history, Abraham, even though he was God's chosen man, to whom God gave the promises. Promises to bless the whole world through him. Yet in the middle of chapter 7, verse 6, the writer says, Melchizedek blessed Abraham, who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior Abraham is blessed by the superior 
Melchizedek. Now, the blessing, this is the blessing that a father would give to the children because he is an authority. You know, if you buy this non-hierarchical stuff in our day and age, it's anti-God, they're anti-wrong, it's all human history is filled with it and for good reason. And so this is a blessing of a father or a blessing of a, a priest in authority, which means the priest or the father. And that blessing, hierarchically, is superior to the one being blessed, the lesser. So since Melchizedek pronounced the blessing on Abraham, he's greater than Abraham and Levi in the entire Levitical priesthood. But Melchizedek is only a type. He's a type, a picture, a shadow of the reality of the one who is supremely great and superior. Jesus, our Lord. If Melchizedek was only a shadow, but he was greater than Abraham and Levi, how much more Christ, the substance. If Melchizedek could bless Abraham, then how much more is, the writer's point, the Son of God ready and able to bless those? Put it in its context now. To bless those who flee for refuge in him. That's what he just said. At the, notice, there's no chapters really. Okay, we put those in. That's what he said at the very end of chapter 6 leading into this, right? Verses 19-20. We have this, he says to these Jewish Christians and to us. We have this as a sure and a steadfast anchor of the soul. It's a hope that enters into the inner place, the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Got to hear it. He's saying to these people, why would you ever want to go back to the law. Why would you ever consider going back to the Levitical priesthood? What kind of blessing do you need? He's saying to them, and he's saying to us, do you need removal officially and legally of your guilt? Do you need the forgiveness of sins? Do you need positively righteousness to be given to you? Because you can't do it. 
Do you need hope? Do you need joy in the midst of life? Almost synonymous with in the midst of trials. Do you need the power of grace to endure? Do you need healing from emotional wounds of the past? What do you need? Jesus is the perfect high priest who dispenses all these blessings to those who lay hold of the promises by drawing near to him. Okay, that's as far as we're going to go to verse 10 this morning. We'll pick up there next week. But So as I close, I want to close with two applications from what we see here. First, what this is saying to us is clear. What you think about or believe about Jesus is really important. The Hebrews, they were in danger of falling away from the faith because they did not grasp, as of yet, how great Melchizedek, king of Salem, was. And therefore, they didn't grasp how much greater the one to whom Melchizedek pointed is. And that led to the danger of them actually contemplating, considering going back to the Jewish rituals, sacrificial system. Remember, Jesus asked the most important question to his 12 apostles one day. While they're having a discussion about what everyone is saying about Jesus. But he looked at them and he looks at all of us today and he said, but who do you say that I am. That question has an objectively true answer. It doesn't matter if you got a big sign on your pretty building that says the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. When you get the answer to that question wrong, you don't have Jesus. And the writer's point throughout this letter is 
Don't get it wrong. Don't get it wrong because eternal life depends on it. Now, if that's true, there's my first point. Then therefore, how important understanding what the Bible teaches, what's on the pages of Scripture, understanding them correctly. In other words, grasping the teachings of Scripture, particularly about the person of Christ, particularly about who God is, particularly about how one is saved, particularly about what Jesus did to save, to, to grasp with your understanding to answer the question, who do you say that I am? Oh, how crucially important that is. Which leads to my second point. Therefore what? Oh, dear professing Christian, we are called daily to pursue. We're called daily to seek God personally in relationship through His Word so that we may gain greater and greater knowledge. Words are not drawings, but words paint pictures in, in our heads. Like Melchizedek paints a picture of who Jesus is in our, in our thoughts. We need to see Melchizedek. Why? Because we want to see the beauty and the glory of our Lord Jesus. That's the flow of the text. We are to make Paul's quest from Philippians chapter 3 our quest. I count everything as loss because of or for the sake of the surpassing worth, the value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And we're human beings. We're not dogs. We have minds. It's one of the reflections of what it is to be made in the image of God in the way that an animal is not. And that means that we human beings have the capacity to direct our attention our thoughts to something. We can say even to ourselves, and we all talk to ourselves. Right, honey? If I'm in the shower. We can say, stop thinking about that. And think about this. We can all focus our attention on ideas. We can focus our attention on a ball game. I might do that a little bit today. We can focus our attention on a book. We can focus our attention on a movie. We can focus our attention on the hope laid up before us, which is the anchor of our souls. And here's the point. Very, very, very much 
of how we use our minds is how we become what we are. If you want to see someone you want to be around who seems to, as a, as, as a sinner being saved by grace, walking with Jesus, it didn't just happen. You can, you, you can, you can follow the, the rope. How, how are they at that place right now in their life to the rope of where their thoughts were leading? Do you, do you want to see someone who has run their own lives into a horrific wreck of devastation and ongoing entanglement and sin? Follow their thoughts. I am make this up. This is clear through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. When he says in verses 5 and 6, For those who live according to the flesh, meaning the sinful desires that we all have that are constantly wanting to rise up, for those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are living according to to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. That's sobering. What you set your mind on determines whether the issue is life or death. So remember how we began this sermon. The context was that the writer, he feared that they have become dull in their thinking. Meaning, dull in their hearing and what they did with the word of God. That means what happened is that they are becoming passive in their thinking and what they are thinking about. Which means we must be aggressive. We must deliberately, constantly set our minds. Remember how Paul said it in Colossians 3? Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. In this passage about Melchizedek now, it teaches us the importance of thinking through Scripture. Why? Because of what everything is about. It's for the sake of worship. For the sake of verse 25 where he gets to, right? Draws a conclusion. To draw near to God. Through Jesus. Pictured 
in Melchizedek. Why is it important? For the sake of turning away from sinful patterns and walking with Jesus. Oh, the mind is a crucial aspect of your walk. This great capacity as human beings that we all have to focus and to consider, it is ultimately meant for considering Jesus. Remember what he said in chapter 3, verse 1. That's it. Consider Jesus. The apostle and high priest. Ooh, consider him as high priest of our confession. And no matter what comes in the culture, if you go on persevering and remain faithful against the culture, which is so anti-Jesus and anti-Christ and anti-Bible today, and it may bring more and more fear and threats to your life and your job, your well-being, by standing with biblical truth on issues like human sexuality and transgenderism, if you stand, he says to us in chapter 12, verse 3, consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Do it so that you may not grow weary when hostility comes and be faint-hearted. And that one imperative verb in chapter 7 of Hebrews is consider, observe how great Melchizedek is. It's when we focus our minds on the glory of Christ. For instance, pictured in Melchizedek that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Why do we need to know about Melchizedek? Because God, in His sovereign providence, has given Him as one door into a vision of the glory of Christ in His priestly work for us. And we're to think about it. And from that... The Spirit engenders affections for Him in worship as we will together be singing from our hearts and souls as we close. Let's pray. Oh, Father, You're good. We thank You for the beauty of Scripture. We thank You for the work of the Holy Spirit in it, the work of the Holy Spirit in this writer to these fellow Christians 2,000 years ago to bring us back to Genesis and to see the beauty of your Son, our great High Priest, who offered up no bulls or goats, but Himself in His humanity as a bloody mess bearing your wrath for us who by your grace were called to flee from the wrath to come and into the joy of your Son, to the glory of his name. Amen. Let us stand.